Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 4th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Lloyd, Skarn & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Second District Court of Appeal has rejected yet another constitutional challenge to the SB 863 lien filing fee. Physician Robin Chorn and three workers' compensation applicants petitioned the Court of Appeal for writ of mandate, asking it to enjoin the WCAB from enforcing two recently enacted provisions of the Labor Code pertaining to the lien filing fees. They claim that Section 4903.05, which imposes a filing fee of $150 on certain medical liens, deprives them of their statute. Uh, state constitutional rights to due process, equal protection, and petitions for redress of grievances. They also claim that Section 4903.8 of the Labor Code, which restricts payment of lien awards to individuals other than those who incurred the expenses, substantially impairs their contractual right to contract. Finally, they argue that both statutes contravene the constitutional mandate that workers' compensation laws accomplish substantial justice expeditiously, inexpensively, and without any encumbrance of any character. The Court of Appeal rejected the petition in the published case of Chorn v. WCAB and Kamala Harris and ruled that the challenged labor code provisions do not violate any constitutional mandate. The California Constitution gives the legislature broad plenary power to regulate and enact limitations upon workers' compensation matters that it has repeatedly affirmed in appellate cases. Thus, nearly any exercise of the legislature's plenary powers over workers' compensation is permissible so long as the legislature finds its actions to be necessary to the effectiveness of the system. The California Constitution does not make a worker's right to benefits absolute, nor does it make lien claimants' rights to reimbursement absolute. Their rights arise out of and are derivative of the underlying workers' compensation claim. Here, the Senate Rules Committee analysis of SB 863 states that the lien system was out of control and could be reined in by reenacting a filing fee so that potential filers of frivolous liens have a disincentive to file. Thus, the lien reforms advance this goal by taking aim at problem liens that impede the functioning of the workers' comp system. A California appellate court reversed the WCAB's denial of death benefits. Here's what happened in the case of Rodas versus the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. Carlos Rodas worked as a dishwasher at Guido's restaurant. In 2012, he took a track trash from the restaurant to the dumpster located about 300 feet away from the building. A patron later found him unresponsive and bloodied in the parking lot. Rodas was pronounced dead at the scene by emergency personnel. The autopsy report concluded in lay terms that he died from a pulmonary hemorrhage secondary to tuberculosis while taking out garbage at work. Medically, his arteries were prone to bleed because of lesions caused by tuberculosis. 
An internist, Ronald Zlotlow, M.D., reported that either coughing brought about by refuge odors or lifting the garbage caused the bleeding. Based on that report, the work comp judge concluded that Rhoda sustained injury arising out of and occurring in the course of his employment that resulted in death. However, a split panel decision reversed and concluded that Dr. Zalutlo's opinion was based on surmise, speculation, conjecture, or guess, and therefore was not substantial evidence that Rhoda's work contributed to the cause of his pulmonary injury and death. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case. In the context of this case, the court noted that the question of what caused the intrathoracic pressure can be answered only by circumstantial evidence, since direct evidence is obviously unavailable. Circumstantial evidence is sufficient to support an award and may be based upon the reasonable inferences that arise from the reasonable probabilities flowing from the evidence. Neither absolute certainty nor demonstration is required. In the case of death occurring at work, the court concluded that the difficulty in proving industrial cause is no reason to deny an award if the evidence warrants it. All reasonable doubts as to whether an injury is compensable are to be resolved in favor of the employee. This is consistent, it says, with the mandate that the workers' compensation laws shall be liberally construed by the courts with the purpose of extending their benefits for the protection of persons injured in the course of their employment. However, the Court of Appeal did not discuss the application of Labor Code Section 3202.5, which was added to the Labor Code in 1993 after the liberal, liberal construction cases cited in the decision were decided. The adoption of Section 3202.5 in 1993, the legislature expressly provided that nothing contained in Section 3202 shall be construed as relieving a party from meeting the evidentiary burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence. Section 3202.5 was at the time part of a legislative reform package resolving long-standing concerns by employers over various issues and by all other stakeholders. Employers had for decades voiced concern about courts using liberal construction to decide the outcome of litigation. And the legislature addressed this concern in 1993 by limiting the application of liberal construction to resolve evidentiary disputes by enacting Section 3202.5. An appellate decision after the adoption of 3202.5 that resolves an evidentiary dispute by certing, citing only Section 3202 alone without at the same time citing 3202.5 and discussing and reconciling both statutes together, does not seem to afford, afford employers the benefit of the legislative process. And now our fraud report. A San Gabriel Valley doctor has agreed to plead guilty to a federal drug trafficking charge for illegally distributing the powerful painkiller OxyContin. 48-year-old Dr. Daniel Cham of Covina has agreed to plead guilty to one count of distribution of oxycodone and one count of money laundering. 
Cham admitted to unlawfully prescribing oxycodone to an undercover agent posing as a patient in exchange for $300 in money orders. Cham deposited the money knowing that the transaction was designed to conceal and disguise the nature and source of the money orders, in other words, money laundering. Cham was initially charged in 2014 when a federal grand jury returned an indictment alleging narcotics trafficking, money laundering, fraud, and making false statements to authorities. The indictment focused on prescriptions he wrote at various locations, including his medical offices in La Puente and Artesia. Over the course of a year, he issued more than 5,500 prescriptions, primarily for oxycodone, hydrocodone, alprazolam, and soma. And he issued more than 42,000 such prescriptions since 2010. The charges carry a statutory maximum penalty of 20 years in federal prison. The California Medical Board shows three disciplinary actions taken against Cham starting in 2010. His license status now is shown as delinquent with the license renewal fee not being paid. He is no longer allowed to practice medicine in California. And in regulatory news, the DWC has finally published the 137-page fourth edition of the Physician's Guide to Medical Practice in the California Workers' Compensation System. This guide helps healthcare providers care for injured workers while complying with complex statutes and regulations. The Physician's Guide was last revised in 2001, and much has happened in the last 15 years. The manual contains 16 chapters, revising material from the third edition and providing new chapters on some subjects, including major reforms passed with SB 899 and SB 863. This is an educational and reference tool to su supplement professional experience. Physicians preparing for the QME certification exam on April 16th will also find it helpful. Claims administrators may find it expeditious to send a copy of this guide to any physician having difficulty with regulatory compliance, pointing out the chapter that is most applicable to the problem. And physicians would be well served to look over this guide in its entirety and have it handy as a reference source when questions arise. The DWC has posted an order adjusting the Durable Medical Equipment, Prosthetics, Orthotics, and Supplies section of the official medical fee schedule. The adjustments conform to the 2016 second quarter changes in the Medicare payment system. The update includes all changes identified in CMS change request number 9554. The April 2016 DME POS file will replace the January 2016 DME POS rural zip code file for services rendered on or after April 1. The DME POS competitive bidding program implemented by CMS was mandated by Congress through the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003. The statute requires that Medicare replace the older fee schedule payment methodology for DME POS items with a competitive bid process. The intent was to improve the effectiveness of the Medicare methodology for setting DME POS payment amounts. CMS is required by law to recompete 
contracts under the DME POS Competitive Bidding Program at least once every three years. The Round 2 and National Mail Order Program contract periods expire on June 30, 2016. Round 2, Recompete, and the National Mail Order Recompete contracts are scheduled to become effective on July 1, 2016 and will expire on December 31, 2018. But some are very critical of this CMS competitive bid program. A recent article in Forbes characterizes the CMS competitive bidding process as a fiasco. Forbes points out that the bidders are not bound by their own bids because the CMS award calculus is based on a musical chairs philosophy. Low bidders do not win based on price or by providing evidence that supports their price. They win based on where their price happens to fall relative to peers when the auction ends. For example, a supplier could bid $30 for a product or service and win at a price set by the CMS at $42. This outcome is the result of the language in the CBP, which states that contracts are awarded to the Medicare suppliers who offer the best price and meet applicable quality and financial standards. The bid price amount is derived from the median of all winning bids for an item. The U.S. Department of Labor Secretary Thomas Perez says his agency will use its bully pulpit to strike at what he calls a disturbing trend towards the workers' compensation opt-out in some states. Perez also confirms a Labor Department investigation of the opt-out alternative to state-regulated workers' compensation that has saved employers millions of dollars. But he also says opt-out is undermining that basic bargain for American workers. Perez says the probe focuses on a practice by thousands of employers in Texas and Oklahoma who now opt out of conventional state workers' compensation in favor of benefit plans that provide lower and fewer payments. Last month, his agency focused an investigation into Partner Source, a Dallas company that wrote and supports almost all opt-out plans in Oklahoma and about half of them in Texas. Texas employers have been able to forego workers' comp and its state-mandated benefits and regulations for decades. Oklahoma employers began opting out in 2014, and proponents are trying to export the concept to a dozen states in the next decade. The two states combined have 1.5 million workers covered by these alternative plans instead of state-regulated workers' comp. Perez cautions that the Labor Department has limited authority to respond because workers' comp is a state-run program. The agency cannot force employers to match state workers' comp benefits when they opt out of the state systems, but opt-out plans may be governed by the Federal Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA. ERISA is regulated by the Labor Department, and the agency's investigation focuses on whether employers are violating ERISA with plans that restrict access to benefits. 
Perez says the Labor Department has the authority to make sure that employers who opt out of workers' comp have important procedural safeguards required by ERISA. If violations are found, the agency could demand procedural corrections, but employers would still be able to provide fewer benefits. And in medical news, new biosimilar drugs may save the healthcare industry $110 billion in drug costs. A biosimilar drug, also known as follow-on biologic or subsequent entry biologic, is a biologic medical product which is almost an identical copy of an original product that is manufactured by a different company. Biosimilars are officially approved versions of original innovator products and can be manufactured when the original product's patent expires. Reference to the innovator product is an integral component of the approval. And a new report by IMS Institute for Healthcare Informatics shows that the lower cost copies of these complex biotech drugs could save the United States and Europe's five top markets as much as 98 billion euros by 2020. Realizing those savings, however, depends on effective doctor education and healthcare providers adopting smart market access strategies. The potential for copycats to make business from original biotech brands is increasingly grabbing the attention of investors. It also presents an opportunity for an emerging group of biosimilar specialists such as South Korea's Celtrion and large generic drug makers with biotech know-how like Novartis and Sandoz. A savings of 98 million euros is based on eight major branded biotech drugs, including AbbVie's Humira and Roche's Herceptin that are set to lose patent protection over the next five years. The IMS forecast covers Germany, France, Italy, Britain, Spain, and the United States. European regulatory authorities led the move with a specially adapted approval procedure to authorize subsequent versions of previously approved biologics. This procedure is based on a thorough demonstration of comparability of the similar product to an existing approved product. In the United States, the FDA held that new legislation was required to enable them to approve biosimilars to those biologics originally approved through the PHS Act pathway. The FDA gained this authority with the Patent Protection and Affordability Care Act signed by President Obama on March 23, 2010. On March 6, 2015, almost five years later, Zarexio obtained the first biosimilar approval with the FDA. Interest in biosimilars has grown significantly in the past two years thanks to the arrival of copies of sophisticated antibody drugs that are among the world's biggest selling prescription medicines. Europe has lengthy experience with biosimilars having approved the first such products 10 years ago but uptake still varies widely from country to country depending upon local market conditions. The new DEA drug take-back program claims to have recovered about 74,000 pounds of unused opioids. The agency chief 
told Congress that four out of five heroin users started on pills, and many people who use or abuse opioid pain pills get them from a friend or relative's medicine cabinet. And that's why the DEA has reinstituted its national take-back program. The most recent September 2015 take-back day was a big success as measured in pounds. The agency took in 749,000 pounds of unwanted and expired drugs. By some estimates, only 10% or so were opioids, but that would be about 74,000 pounds of opioids. The next take-back will be April 30th of this year in 5,000 communities around the country. The other take-back day this year will be likely in October. The United States has 5% of the world's population, but consumes 99% of the world's hydrocodone. The DEA is approaching the opioid problem with a 360-degree strategy. This includes keeping pain pills on the legitimate stream of commerce, attacking the supply side, and trying to reduce demand through education, treatment, and prevention. The 360-degree program is now being tested in four cities, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, West Memphis, and Milwaukee, cities that generally had an uptick in crime. The FDA supports the responsible disposal of medicines from the home. Almost all medicines can be safely disposed of by using medicine take-back programs or using U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency DEA authorized collectors. DEA authorized collectors safely and securely collect and dispose of pharmaceutical, controlled substances, and other prescription drugs. Authorized collection sites may be retail pharmacies, hospital or clinic pharmacies, and law enforcement locations. Some pharmacies may also offer mail-back envelopes to assist consumers in safely disposing of their unused medicines through the U.S. mail. Consumers can visit the DEA's website for more information about drug disposal and to locate an authorized collector in their area. The White House called for more funding and a new approach to help people addicted to heroin and prescription drugs seeking to shine a public spotlight on an increasingly deadly killer. President Obama said during an appearance at a drug abuse summit in Atlanta that opioid overdoses killed more people in the United States than traffic accidents. And he said efforts to fight the epidemic were grossly underfunded. Earlier this year, Obama asked the U.S. Congress for $1.1 billion in new funding over two years to expand treatment for the epidemic. And now opioid addiction has become an issue in the 2016 presidential campaign. He said, we have viewed the problem of drug abuse generally in our society through the lens of the criminal justice system for too long. In 2014, a record number of Americans died from drug overdoses, with the highest rates seen in West Virginia, New Mexico, New Hampshire, Kentucky, and Ohio. Obama said he needs Congress to open the purse strings to help expand treatment, particularly in rural areas, and applauded bipartisan legislation designed to combat the problem. Meanwhile, his administration announced $11 million in grants for up to 11 states to help expand medication-assisted treatment 
and another $11 million for states to buy and distribute the overdose drug naloxone. The Health and Human Services Department is also proposing a new rule for buprenorphine, a medication used to help addicted people reduce or quit their use of heroin or painkillers. The rule would allow physicians who are qualified to prescribe the medication to double their patient limit to 200. The White House said that measure would expand treatment for tens of thousands of people. And in other news, if you need workers' compensation medical transportation, there's an app for that. It may be that Uber-type competition is about to challenge the medical transportation industry in California, hopefully bringing lower prices and better service. EMS Find Incorporated announced the launch of its updated website. The on-demand medical transportation mobile application is now available for download in Google Play Store, and the updated version is now offered in the Apple App Store. Within month, one month, the company plans to release the desktop version for scheduling and tracking medical transport. All versions will facilitate the seamless integration between medical transporters and healthcare providers. The company is also forming several strategic partnerships with industry peers to provide the ultimate solution to manage medical transportation fleet scheduling tasks, as well as integration with the Uber platform to allow any Uber driver to assist in transportation to medical appointments for those that do not require an ambulance or other specialized medical equipment. The company is also working on implementing claim billing functionality along with an automatic verification of patients' eligibility to receive medical insurance compensation for transportation. The app is designed to reduce the paper load and the time currently burdening the social workers, case managers, and other healthcare professionals in charge of scheduling. In California, the app is expected to involve about 50 ambulances and other special medical vehicles interacting with several skilled care facilities in and around Los Angeles County. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarrett, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.